Today our reading is from Paul's powerful letter to the Romans, chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Michael. Good everyone. It's great to be with you. My name's Sam. I'm the pastor of our Uni Church congregation. I know lots of you guys already, but there might be some uh, who I haven't before. I'd love to say good day after the service. Let me tell you, uh, by way of introduction, about a few things that I love. I love slow-cooked beef ribs uh, in a soy sauce over jasmine rice. I love the Carlton Football Club, even when they miss finals and break my heart. I love zombie movies and I love my wife and my daughters. We have some issues with the way we use that word love, right? Those Loves are not equivalent loves, although I really, really do like those beef sticky ribs. Love. It's, it's perhaps the most overused, perhaps the most misunderstood word in our language. But we love love, right? As a culture and in every culture, every time, every place. Humans love love. Most of our f- most famous songs are about love. Most of our most famous works of literature and film are about love. Great feats of history, great acts of construction and building have been acts of love. But we're confused about that word. But scripture has a much much clearer, a much more robust way of talking about love than our culture does. Scripture uses four different words for love in the New Testament, each with quite a different meaning. Perhaps if you've uh, read The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis or kind of similar things around this, you'll be familiar with this idea. But let me just share with us what the four New Testament words are for love. 
So the New Testament speaks about philia, friendship, love. It's a kind of bond that unites us with those uh, who we're close to. It talks about storge, which is like a description of um, instinctive affection, like a parent feels for their child. The New Testament talks about eros, which is like where we get the word erotic from. It means romantic love. And the New Testament uses the word agape. That's the highest love, the love which God shows us. Agape love is, is pure, it's deliberate, it's sacrificial, it's enduring love. And the writers of the New Testament are really particular, they're really deliberate about when they use that word, agape, to talk about love. It's like they want this particular word to mark out uniquely the kind of love which God shows to us and calls us to show to other people. It's this agape kind of love which should mark out Jesus' followers in the world. Jesus himself said it in John 13, right? He said, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you, agape, love one another. That love is is a central driving force for the Christian life. What does Jesus say when someone asks him is the greatest commandment? Agape, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, he said. And a second is like it. Agape, love your neighbour as yourself. Love is the central idea here in Romans chapter 12. It's helpful to identify that central idea up the top, I think, because maybe you felt this as we read our passage. There's a heap of commands, a heap of instructions in our passage this afternoon. It's called a paranesis passage with this sequence of different instructions. In our 13 verses, there are 30 commands. It can be hard to know how those hold together. But love, as we'll see, is the the central, the controlling, the unifying command of this passage. Have a look at verse 9 with me. Paul is kind to us. He tells us right off the bat what he's going to say about love. Love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. That's the big idea of this passage. Agape love must be sincere. And that word sincere means, it means unhypocritical, without a mask, without pretense. Friends of mine uh, taught their kids table manners and especially manners for when you go to someone else's house for a meal. And they taught them this, this formula. At the end of the meal at someone else's house, You say, thank you very much for dinner, I especially loved, and then finish with the part of the meal that you liked the most. And so armed with this training, their eldest kid at the end of a meal at a friend's house said, thank you very much for dinner, I especially loved the water. (laughs) (laughs) See, sometimes love isn't totally sincere, is it? But love after the pattern of God's love, agape love, is sincere, it's truthful, it's real, it's genuine and it changes the way we do things. 
So what we're going to do is, is look at two areas of life where we see this principle of sincere love played out. First, we're going to look at our relationships with one another in the church, in our community here. So have a read with me uh, in the handout, if you've got it there, or in your Bible uh, from verse 10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. I wonder, as you read those verses, what, what words might you use or what themes might you draw out to kind of capture what those verses are calling us to? What kind of expression of sincere love do we see here? Well, I think it's a, it's a picture of kind of a wholehearted and all-in, sacrificial, spirit-driven love, service for the community of believers, right? See in verse 11 where it's translated, keep your spiritual fervour. That translation misses a really key metaphor that's in the word there of being set on fire. A more literal translation of that phrase might be, be on fire with the spirit as you serve the Lord. I love that picture of sincere love, spiritual fervour set on fire by the spirit. The one who loves their Christian brothers and sisters with agape love burns with, with passion, with commitment to serve them. Right? It's not half-hearted, it's not a hobby, it's not a, a social club, it's not two hours on a Sunday morning. It's comprehensive, it's pervasive, it's motivating. And it's unpacked a bit more for us then in verses 12 to 14. When we love one another like that, love that's set on fire by the Spirit, our love is patient it's prayerful, it's practical. It's patient in affliction, it's faithful in prayer, it's practical as we share our material resources with one another and practice hospitality. So how might your love be more sincere? How might your love be set on fire by the Spirit for the people here in this room? By being patient in love by being prayerful in love, by being practical in love for one another. There is no room for our love for one another here to remain just emotional or just when it's convenient to us. We're urged to share with the Lord's people who are in need, to practice hospitality. What might that look like for us? Hospitality just means that it looks like inviting people into our lives, our genuine lives, in our spaces, in our homes, in our relationships. And not just into the, the kind of polished up, vacuumed, smiling versions of ourselves, but the, the true, sometimes messy, sincere reality of our lives. A former mentor of mine and his wife and their family was so hospitable that their home became like a second home for a whole community of young Christians, uh, including me and my wife, Ronnie. We were there all the time. Heaps of other people from our church community and beyond were as well. The first time I went to their house, 
They'd only just moved to Australia. I'd only met them once, but they invited me in to their home to have dinner with their kids. They included me in their family devotion after dinner. They often had people living with them who needed a place to stay, and those people were folded into their rhythms, just like I was. Eventually, you didn't even need to knock anymore. You just entered that house as if it was your own. It's, it's a countercultural, it's a radical, it's a costly vision for hospitality here. And it's unusual vision for hospitality, I think. It certainly was in ancient Rome. In this ancient Greco-Roman context, philosophers of the day normally associated virtue not with things like hospitality, but with what they called apatheia, where we get the word apathy from, a deliberate lack of involvement in and care for the affairs of other people. So this picture of of all-in, passionate, fiery love for one another, involvement in one another's lives, was and continues to be radical. Of course it is, right? Do you remember the the command that opened this section of Romans for us last week, back in Romans 12, verse 2? Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So there's a worldly pattern in view here of of apatheia, of apathy, of, of uninvolvement in each other's lives and a transformed life of sincere love, love set on fire by the Spirit. Apathy is not God's vision for our lives. Passivity is not God's vision for our lives. Neither is is frantic activity running around as if we were sovereign and God were not and it all depended on us. But here in Romans 12, God is calling us to reject the worldly pattern of apathy and instead be transformed by the renewing of our minds to be zealous, to keep our spiritual further, to be set on fire by the Spirit. So Paul's first application right, of this principle of sincere love is his encouragement to the Christian community together to be devoted to one another in this way. And like we saw, it's been full of these positive commands. Do this, do this, do that, do that. And then in the middle of verse 16, have a look at it there in front of you, the grammar switches. And it's an indication to us that Paul's moving from one application of his principle of sincere love to a new application of it. Have a look there in in verse 16. So he's been giving all these positively worded commands, right? Do this, do this, do this, do this. We get to verse 16, live in harmony with one another. And then it switches, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. And he goes on and on. Now, this isn't an, it's not an absolute pattern, right? He did use a negative command in verse 11. He will use a couple of positive commands in verses 17 and 18. But there's quite a clear and deliberate switch from one to the other here. And it helps us shift into a new, a new realm, a new part of life to apply this principle of sincere love. Revenge. My grandmother 
is one of the most uh, thrifty and, and generous people that I know. She has been into financial austerity and sustainable living since long before it was cool. And she does that so that she can be financially generous to other people. So recently her bed broke. And instead of doing what you and I might do, heading off to Ikea, buying a new bed for $79 that will break in another two or three years from now, she looked on the manufacturer's label on her bed, which she'd bought in the 70s or 80s, and she rang them up to ask about repairing the bed. And the guy on the other end of the line, the guy at the company, quoted her $3,000 to fix the bed and tried to organise to come round and complete the job before anyone else knew or could intervene. Luckily, Gran was too smart for him and she spoke to us first and we fixed the bed for her. But you, you should have heard the words, some of which came out of my mouth, most of which I managed to keep inside when I heard about this. This bottom feeder trying to rip off my 93-year-old grandmother for $3,000. I spent days fantasising plots about going to his factory, making him pay for what he tried to do to her. I thought of countless ways that I could extract the money from him that he tried to extract from her. I, I daydreamed a lot of revenge. Because we, we kind of love revenge, right? If we love love, I think we also love revenge. If many of our songs and, and our films and our plays are about love, many of the others are about revenge, right? The Iliad, Hamlet, The Count of Monte Cristo, Wuthering Heights, Moby Dick. You can go on and on and on. Revenge dominates movies and TV, including one of the biggest franchises of all time, right? It's, it's literally called The Avengers. Revenge, our desire for revenge, it, it might not feel pressing to some of us in the room, but for others of us, it's consuming. Revenge against the person who hurt you. Revenge against your parents. Revenge after the breakdown of your marriage. Revenge after being cheated or ignored or ripped off in your work. Revenge after being taken advantage of. It's not clear exactly what situation Paul has in mind here in Romans 12 as he writes them about revenge. Possibly experiences that were particular to the lives of Christian believers in this increasingly hostile Roman society, things like losing their livelihoods, being ostracised. Or it might just be the, the everyday situations that everyone goes through of, of cheating in commerce or bullying or, or personal conflict. But whatever their situation and whatever ours, God calls us away from revenge. Have a look from verse 19 with me. Do not take revenge my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So as we saw with Paul's exhortation to love for one another, here again, this teaching stands in really stark contrast to the prevailing philosophy of the Greco-Roman world that he's writing in. Here, this, this is from Aristotle. To take vengeance on one's enemies is nobler than to come to terms with them. For to retaliate is just, and that which is just is noble, and further, a courageous man ought not to allow himself to be beaten. And the Old Testament famously engages with the human desire for revenge, right? It regulates and limits this instinct through the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth injunctions which are there to ensure proportional punishment rather than escalating blood feuds. But even the Old Testament points beyond just limiting revenge, points towards forgiveness and grace. As we see Paul quote here in verses 19 and 20, he's drawing from Deuteronomy 32 and Proverbs 25. Or, hear this from Leviticus 19 verse 18, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. Those are familiar words, right? Jesus himself picks up this teaching and he teaches and models the ultimate antithesis of revenge, which is grace. Grace which goes above and beyond in responding to evil. See, grace is more than resisting the urge for revenge. Grace is more even than forgiving the one who you might otherwise seek revenge over. Grace is responding to evil with blessing. But grace is Jesus dying on the cross and praying for the soldiers who've nailed him up there. That's grace. And that's what we're called to here in Romans chapter 12. Verse 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's participating with Christ. That's showing grace. So, I wonder, is there anyone in your life who you long to have revenge over? If so, how might God in his word today be calling you to release that desire? to trust God's words here, that it is mine to avenge, says the Lord. Now, grace grace doesn't minimise or ignore the offence. Not for a moment. We can let go of revenge because of two things. Because Jesus himself died to ensure that justice is done and to set us the model of grace and because vengeance is the Lord's. As verse 19 puts it, we leave room for God's wrath. Wrath to be satisfied either by the blood of Jesus on their behalf or in themselves at the end of all things. Because of the cross and the final judgment of God, we can respond to evil with blessing, with grace, not with revenge. How might we live this out 
today. Well, when I talk about our desire for revenge, there might be a very clear face in your mind. Some of us don't find it hard to see what part of our life this teaching connects to. That person who cheated you, who hurt you, who denied what they should have given you, who took something from you. The call here is to entrust vengeance to the Lord and show grace. The call is to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Friends, this kind of sincere love is a high call. It's a high aspiration for the life of discipleship. Of course it is, right? These calls stand out from the patterns of the world. They're meant to. Patterns of the world, patterns are patterns for a reason, right? It's easy to drift into apathy instead of fiery love for one another. It's easy to indulge the desire for revenge instead of showing grace. But God doesn't call us to do anything he doesn't empower us for. Do you remember how Paul started this section of Romans? Chapter 12, verse 1. In view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. It's God's mercy in the cross of Christ that gives us the perfect model of entrusting vengeance to the Lord following the example of the one who cried out, forgive them, Lord, they do not know what they are doing. God's mercy in the gospel ensures that one day, perfect justice will be done, that every person will be held to account for their actions, either themselves or by having their sins crucified with Christ. God's mercy in sending his spirit empowers us for this radically other-oriented love to be set on fire by that spirit to serve and love one another in powerful and enduring ways. Here's the point. This is a high call to sincere love, but you can live it out. You can do it. You can and we can be the kind of not conforming to the world, transformed people and transformed community of people which we are called to be here in Romans 12. And we must be that community of people. So let me pray that we would. God, we thank you for the love that you showed us and that you call us to show to one another and the world. Help us to love one another here with fiery love that's patient, that's prayerful, that's practical. Help us, Lord, to entrust vengeance to you as we show love to those who have wronged us in our lives. God, make us more like you. Make us more loving and be glorified through it. Amen.